Welcome to Keep the Faith, the bi-weekly podcast in which contemporary issues are explored through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Contemporary issues abound in this week's episode. Among them, women's rights, workers' rights, gun violence and gun control, supply to the poor and disadvantaged, the influx of migrants coming across our southern border, how business should be conducted, what our responsibilities are to the environment and ecology, and more. It's a lot of ground to cover in one podcast, but with the High Holy Days beginning just one week from tonight at sundown next Friday, September 15th, this is the time to deal with them as individuals and as a community, because they're all part of that Heshbon HaNethesh, that accounting of our souls we're supposed to be doing to prepare ourselves for the awesome work of stock-taking and repenting required of us on the High Holy Days. And so, the topic for this week is the third and final installment in my updated Roadmap to Repentance in the 21st Century series. We're going to run longer than usual this week. I hope you'll find it well worth it, though. All of the issues I just listed are found in just a single Torah reading, the portion we read on August 26th this year, known as Kitesek. It contains just 111 sentences, within which are 72 commandments that come rushing at us one right after another. That's 12% of the 613 commandments to be found in the Torah. In a real sense, Kitetse is our roadmap to repentance on steroids. Before I begin with our first issue, women's rights, there's something that I believe needs to be addressed right now. It mainly involves women, and it's one that too many men, myself included, seem to be clueless about whenever any Jewish festival is on the horizon. It's more pronounced around Passover, but it's true before the High Holy Days, before Sukkot and Shavuot, very likely even during Hanukkah and Purim. In most homes, it's the women who do the planning, the cleaning, and the cooking in preparing for a festival. And while they're doing all that, triggers keep popping up that evoke memories that fill their minds and hug at their hearts. Many women rely on recipes handed down by a mother, a grandmother, a favorite aunt, a cousin, or a dear friend. Using those recipes brings back memories of those lost loved ones and the time spent with them during the Chagim. They begin as fond memories, of course, but all too soon, those memories are overtaken by a renewed sense of loss, which would be a joyous time morphs into a bittersweet experience. It only gets worse when the time comes to set the table. That's because setting the table triggers memories of some of our favorite guests of yesteryear and the time spent sitting around a festive table with them. We all have such memories of this. A sound, a sight, a smell. A piece of paper falling out of a book, an old photo stuck in the back of a drawer. There are all kinds of triggers that exist to spark a memory of a grandparent, a parent, a sibling, a child, an uncle or aunt, a cousin, a spouse, a friend. We all have such memories, but women are the most affected by them because of the many hours and days they spend doing work that serves to trigger memories that just keep coming. Passover especially brings back memories for me every year 
sitting at a long table in my grandparents' living room as my father and my maternal grandfather argued the same points they argued every year about things found in the Haggadah. For us men, though, those memories are of the moment. For women, they are ever-present. My listeners who are men must be sensitive to what the women in our lives are experiencing. We need to reach out to them in an effort to comfort them. Okay, let's begin. From early on in world history to right now, rape was and continues to be used as a weapon of war. A UN study in 2008, for example, found that during any armed conflict, between 60% and 80% of women and girls are raped or sexually abused. We saw this happening in Rwanda in 1994 and in Iraq from 2014 to 2020. We're seeing it today in Syria in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we're seeing it today in Ukraine. Human Rights Watch reports that women there are being raped in their homes, in their places of work, and on the streets. No place is safe for Ukrainian women. Rape has a devastating effect. The actual act may be over in just minutes. The rape itself remains with its victims for at least most of their lives, if not for the rest of their lives. So devastating and dehumanizing a crime is rape. The Torah later on in that same parsha likens it to murder, and frankly, rape is murder of a unique kind, because the victim's self-esteem, sense of self-worth, ability to ever fully trust anyone again or to have a normal, intimate relationship with anyone, those are all dead. Rape is a form of murder, and the Torah 3,500 years ago made that clear in Kitetse and legislated to deal with it. It even says that a person bent on rape may be killed if that's the only way to stop him. If history is to be believed, these rules did dissuade most Israelite soldiers in the ancient world from even thinking about rape. Because none of us, I hope, would ever even consider doing such a thing. What relevance does this have to a roadmap to repentance? Well, for one thing, this is the kind of extreme example the Torah often engages in to make a point, a device that our sages of blessed memory later turned into an art form. The Torah commands us to immediately bury an executed criminal. From this, our sages ruled that we must bury all our dead as soon as possible. After all, if we have to do that for a murderer of a reason, how much more so must we do that for everyone else? In this case, if we men aren't allowed to mistreat and abuse, and worse, sexually abuse, captive women, how much more so are we forbidden to mistreat or abuse any woman in any way? This commandment, then, is yet another instance in the Torah in which women's rights are protected by Torah law. I should note, by the way, that under Torah law, a husband is guilty of rape if he sexually forces himself on his wife. As our sages interpreted it, the Torah gives women all of the conjugal rights in a relationship. Men have no conjugal rights, only conjugal obligations. Put another way, if a woman in a committed relationship wants to be intimate, 
the partner has no right to say no. If she doesn't want to be intimate, her no is no. The Torah was far ahead of everyone else regarding marital rape. Until 1975, for example, every one of the 50 states and the District of Columbia did not consider marital rape a crime. It wasn't until 1993 that marital rape was made illegal throughout the United States. It's also illegal today in 150 countries around the world, but there are still about 45 countries that haven't yet caught up to the Torah's 3,500-year-old law. Another commandment that follows this one deals with the issue of the wayward son, and it's far more significant when it comes to women's rights than its words seem to say. It begins quite deliberately with, quote, if a man has a wayward and defiant son, unquote. It doesn't say if a man and his wife have such a son. It only mentions the man who, in so many societies, including here in the United States, especially among some evangelical Christian sects, for example, considers himself to be the sole authority in the family, whose word is law. Not so, says the poet. Listen to the whole verse, and I haven't added or changed a word, although I will emphasize some of it. Quote, If a man has a wayward and defiant son who does not heed his father or mother and does not obey them even after they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the public place of his community. They shall say to the elders of his town, This son of ours is disloyal and defiant. He does not heed us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Thereupon his town's council shall stone him to death. Unquote. This mitzvah, this commandment, gruesome as it sounds on the surface, pulls the rug out from under any illusion the man may have that he's in sole charge of the family. It begins with, if a man has a wayward and defiant son. But from then on, repeatedly, it includes the child's mother. In carefully and deliberately repetitive language, the Torah tells us that both parents have an equal say in raising their children. The Torah makes this point elsewhere as well. It tells us to honor your father and your mother. But it also tells us to respect your mother and your father. By switching around father and mother, the Torah is saying that both parents are equal partners in the family, and both have an equal say. One way this equality works out in Jewish law, by the way, is that if a man, say, is offered a job in another town, he's not allowed to accept it unless his wife agrees to move. The wayward son commandment goes out of its way to take any sense of ownership of his children away from the father. He may want his son to be killed, but his wife, the son's birth mother, being the father's equal, has to agree. Not only that, but she has to participate in making the request. Both parents must bring their wayward son to the elders, 
both have to testify that they both had instructed their son and that he ignored both of them, that both disciplined him for ignoring them, and that they both agreed that he should be executed. If the son's birth mother had died, by the way, all bets are off because if she's not there to agree, what her husband wants is irrelevant. As bizarrely harsh and backward as this commandment sounds like, a Mishnah informs us that it was deliberately constructed in a way to make it impossible for a man to ever have his son executed. Daughters, I should add, are not subject to this law as our sages rule. That's probably because fathers tend to give their daughters more slack. In the ancient world, and even today in many Muslim societies, a man says, I divorce you three times, and his wife is tossed out of the house and left on her own. The Torah here puts the brakes on that. First, it requires a man to write out a bill of divorcement, a get, as we call it, and this get must contain his reasons for wanting that divorce. Then, he has to publicly present it to the elders who meet as a court in the city gate, which is where the public congregated in ancient times. If the reasons he gives are really frivolous, she burns my post every morning, say, he'll quickly become a laughingstock. To avoid that fate, of course, a man might invent some lies about his wife, so there's another commandment to deal with that. If his lies are found out, not only is he to be flogged and fined, but, quote, she shall remain his wife, he shall never have the right to divorce her, unquote. We also have a commandment this week that prohibits a newlywed male from being drafted into the army for an entire year after the wedding because, quote, he should give happiness to the woman he has married, unquote. The Torah recognizes that women don't get married so that they can live on their own and fend for themselves after the wedding is over. Let's move on to discuss workers' rights, and specifically how we should deal with our employees and others who do work for us, how we treat them, and how we're to pay them. Think Walmart, Amazon, McDonald's, and Starbucks in this regard. In 2021, the U.S. Department of Labor recovered over $335 million in back wages for more than 270,000 workers. This is just a fraction of the unpaid wages that are estimated to occur each year. The commandment in Kitese is quite blunt. Quote, you shall not abuse the needy and destitute laborer, whether a fellow Israelite or a stranger in one of the communities of your land. You must pay out the wages due on the same day before the sun sets, for the worker is needy and urgently depends on it. Unquote. Anyone, we import, qualifies as a needy laborer. They're working for us because that's how they get the money they need to feed themselves and their families. It's how they make ends meet. And that qualifies them as needy and destitute for the purpose of this mitzvah. Whoever they are, and whatever work they do, they must be paid sufficiently for the work they do, and they must be paid in a timely manner. This also applies to the equal pay for equal work issue. Not paying women what we pay men for the same work is a form of abuse. Moving on, 
There's a commandment this week that's of great relevance to the migrant issue. Quote, you shall not return to his master a slave who seeks refuge with you. He or she shall live with you in any place he or she may choose among the settlements in your midst. You must not ill-treat him or her. There's so much for us to understand in that commandment. That would stop. To repeat, the Torah's commandments are interdependent. There's no one without the other. That being said, one of the other 71 commandments in Kitese requires us to return any lost property to its owner. Since we're told here that we may not return runaway slaves to their owners, the Torah is telling us that a slave is not, and never was, a piece of property. The Torah has been making this point ever since Mount Sinai, when God gave Israel its constitution, the Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant. To kill a slave, it says there, is murder. To physically injure a slave is to instantly free him or her from slavery. Because people can deal with their property as they see fit, just read the history of the American South, it follows that a slave is not anyone's property, according to the Torah. The Torah condones slavery, that's true. But only on the surface. Its commandments, though, don't fit the normal definition of slavery. And for good reason. The Torah's ultimate purpose is not to support slavery, but to do away with it, as it eventually did in ancient Israel. According to the Torah's commandments, many of which are found in our Roadmap to Repentance, meaning the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, a slave must be treated with respect, fed the same food as the master's household, and allowed to celebrate festivals together with the master's household. If those slaves are Israelite slaves, they have to be freed after completing six full years of servitude, and they must be so well compensated for those six years of service that they'll be able to survive on their own. A foreign slave who chooses to become a part of Israel becomes an Israelite slave and is thus covered by the same rules. The Torah actually abhors slavery. Not only does the Torah make the point that a slave is not a piece of property, but it also tells us that the runaway slave must be accepted into our community and treated as an equal. He or she must be given a decent place to live, and it has to be a place that a person chooses. He or she may not be marginalized in any way or mistreated or taken advantage of in any way. He or she must be provided with whatever he or she needs to live on. And then we must help that person find a livelihood that will allow him or her to live a decent life on his or her own. That's a remarkable law from 3,500 years ago, because in that world, as the Code of Hammurabi attests, the law everywhere but in Israel was that whoever protects a runaway slave is to be executed for doing so. Someone fleeing from oppression and persecution is a slave in every sense of the word, which brings us to the migrant situation. How many of us are actually aware of how these people are treated in the substandard detention centers they're locked away in before being thrown back across the border? How many of us are even aware that one out of every three migrants in these detention centers are under 18 years of age? In fact, how many of us even care enough 
to be aware. Out of sight, after all, is out of mind. Thanks to the disgraceful behavior of such governors as Texas's Greg Abbott, these migrants are not so much out of sight these days. This commandment insists that we must be aware and that we must care. It tells us that helping that person settle in among us and giving that person the wherewithal to make a life for him or herself is our responsibility. There's more. As I said, the Torah's commandments are interdependent. In chapter 19 of Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, we're told that we must love the stranger as we would love ourselves. And there and elsewhere, we're also told that we must treat the stranger as we would treat our own citizens. The runaway slave is one of those strangers. Add to that the fact that the Torah commands us over 50 times to have one law for us and, quote, the stranger who is within your gates, unquote. And it should be clear that even illegal migrants must be treated the way everyone else is treated. Of course, this country doesn't run on Torah law, and it doesn't have to. But we do have to. When we evaluate how we lived our individual lives in 5783, this is another area that we need to evaluate. Animal cruelty is a big issue in our world. A number of commandments in Kitetse and elsewhere in Deuteronomy and the rest of the Torah underscore our obligations to the non-human life forms on this planet. These laws form the category of Jewish law known as Tsar Ba'alei Chaim, or needlessly harming all creatures, great and small. We may call all these creatures dumb animals, but the Torah insists that they have feelings, and they must be respected and cared for, not abused or neglected. Jewish law even requires us to feed our animals before we can sit down to our own meals. One law in Kitetse is especially relevant to us today. I often discuss it at greater length in other episodes of this podcast. There's also a whole body of law that I often discuss dealing with the environment, but I'll get to that in a moment. The law in Kitetse is the so-called parapet law, which on its face requires us to consider the long-term consequences of wear and tear of the things we build. Beneath the surface, it requires us to remove from our homes anything that could cause danger to life or limb, a broken ladder, for example, or an unsecured firearm. As of Wednesday morning, according to the Gun Violence Archive website, 29,526 people have died so far this year in this country by gunshots, and 1,221 of them were children from under a year old up to the age of 17. So far this week through Wednesday morning, 11 children died by a gun. What have we done to demand that our leaders finally deal with this dreaded problem? The second commandment I want to discuss is the whole body of Torah law requiring us to take care of our environment and everything in it. On Wednesday, it was reported that 2023 was the hottest summer ever since such statistics have been kept. That heat has its consequences. The extreme weather that we're continuing to see in many parts of the U.S. and around the world this year 
tells us how important it is to study and practice the Torah's environmental and ecological laws, including the Torah law that requires us to recycle and to not waste fuels of any kind. The body of law known as Baal Tashkit, do not destroy, flows from a law that appeared in the Torah portion immediately before Kitesa in the Parsha known as Shoftim. There's so much more to discuss, but we're already running long. Here's a quick rundown of some of the other commandments contained in Kitesa that make up a significant part of our roadmap to repentance in the 21st century. The Torah doesn't recognize finders, keepers, losers, weepers. As I said earlier, if someone loses anything and we find it, the Torah demands that we have to return it. Not as easy as it sounds, and there's a whole section in the Talmud dealing with the myriad issues involved. That actually would make a great episode down the road. I know I said this last year too, and I still haven't done it, but I will. We also have a commandment here that speaks volumes about how we're supposed to behave towards everyone else. And it says it in an incredible way. Quote, you shall not abhor an Egyptian, for you are a stranger in that land, unquote. Really? Moses is telling the Israelites who were cruelly enslaved by Egypt for several hundred years, who saw their firstborn male children slaughtered at birth, who were chased down by the Egyptian army after they left Egypt only to be saved at the last moment by a divided sea, Moses is telling those people and us that they and we shouldn't hate an Egyptian? Yes, he is. And to go back to that extreme example device I mentioned earlier, the point of that commandment is that if we're not supposed to hate an Egyptian from the Exodus period, we surely aren't supposed to hate anyone else in any period. Kitese repeats what the Torah often stresses, that we have to care for society's poor and the disadvantaged, and we may not subvert their rights in any way. It tells us we have to keep our living areas clean, and that includes our home and the world outside. Finally, in the commandment requiring merchants to have honest weights and measures, the Torah is telling us, and not for the first time, that we have to be completely honest and above board in all our business dealings, because, quote, everyone who deals dishonestly is abhorrent to the Lord your God, unquote. That's our roadmap for repentance in the 21st century. It's all about how we behave towards others, whoever those others happen to be. It's all about our responsibilities to everyone and everything in our world. There are all among the things we ask atonement for on the High Holy Days, after which we'll gain atonement only if we demonstrate over the next year that we were serious about not ever repeating. Our words don't count. Only our actions matter. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelman. I do hope you come back for my next podcast and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this for my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish standard but want to read my columns, Go to the columns page of my website, 
Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep taking all COVID-19 precautions, including wearing N95 masks in public, no matter who tells you otherwise. And have a wonderful and meaningful Rosh Hashanah. May we all be inscribed in the Book of Life for a year of good health, peace, prosperity, and, above all, a year in which we all stay 